This is exactly right. The sixth anniversary episode. Oh my god! What? What? What have we been doing for the past six years? Six years just bullshitting around with some vocal fry? How dare you? So many things have happened in the past six years. (laughs) Life changing, (laughs) mundane, amazing, kind of cool, very cool. A pandemic. Oh, a pandemic. There's that. There's that one too, you know. So many memories. It's been a real ride. That's for sure. Yeah. I feel like we're going to look back on this in six more years and be like, why did we do this another six years? (laughs) (laughs) And they'll be like, talk to me at the year 10 anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, that would have been year 12. Right. But who's counting? I think not counting is the key. Yeah. Right? I don't fucking, I never pay attention to anniversaries. My mom just texted me, your brother's birthday is tomorrow. Like, I can't <laughs> get, I cannot get anyone's birthday, even my nephews. I, I'm just so bad at that. Vince and I have to like pull his wedding ring off and look at the date inscribed in it to know when our <laughs> wedding anniversary is. Well, it's good that you got that done. Then you, then you can't, <laughs> oh that's. God. At least you know yourself well enough to be like, I need this reminder. It's who I am. Yeah. Who cares? I don't give a shit. You're thinking about other stuff. Do you know what? I celebrate every fucking day. Like, it's Father's Day. That's what my dad always says. Every day is Father's Day <laughs> when your grown kids want to talk to you. <laughs> when you when you actually still communicate right. with your father. Yeah, that's right. it's a true celebration. I mean, it is a, that is the way to live. That's the way to be. Truly. How are you being? How are you living? How are you dealing? I'm still a little bit on vacation, so I'm doing really good. I'm really happy for you. I'm a, like for 2022, I feel the difference. I'm insisting upon feeling a difference. <laughs> I think there can be a difference. I don't think we have to be the victims of our circumstances. I think we can get a uh, proactive and even just the way we approach mm-hmm. everything. Um, but that's easy for me to say because I get to smell the salt air every day. Ugh. So. When you yeah. showed me the view from the balcony where you're saying of the beach and the palms swaying in the trees <laughs> and the, the palms swaying in the trees. Yeah, I'm going I'm at a very special uh, resort that's tree. <laughs> there's trees planted inside palm trees. Look, it's a Dr. Seuss resort. It's fucking all kinds of crazy things are going on. It's called the Lorax. And <laughs> we all just hang around with Starbelly Sneeches and Aww. we get it done. I love it. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think things have been so stressful for every person yeah. on the planet. Yeah. That the trying to be every day is Father's Day with your attitude is, is you got to be, keep it in front of mind. Yeah, for sure. Like how grateful, you know, what really helped me in the past like week is talking to my therapist and being like, I have this to-do list and it makes me want to take a nap. I can't fucking deal with anything. I can't do the, fir- I can't do any of it. And she was like, why do you think you have to do it all at once? Mm-hmm. And so like, this is so simple, but I did one load of laundry instead of the three that I had yeah. to do. 
And I fucking did it. And it took me two days of turning the dryer back on and turning the dryer back on. Yep. But I did a load of laundry and it was yep. fucking fine. I don't have to do it all at once. No, one a day. Yeah. I heard that's called it's an it's paralysis by analysis where you just Girl. get to or perfectionism. You just get to if I can't do it all, then I shouldn't do anything at all. And that's not that's not it. You got to chip away. Yeah. Chip away. Paralysis by what? Neuralysis? Paralysis by analysis, which means you just overthink. It's another way of saying overthinking. Got it. I like it. Instead, we're chipping away like yeah. little chipmunks Aww. chipping away. Aww. That's how we got to six years. That's right. Right? Week after week, just one week at a time, <laughs> panicking about the next week constantly. Yeah, That's sure. <laughs> yes. But hey, isn't that the zest of life? The oh, panic. Oh, we have to add writing a book now? Great. Let's do it. Oh, we're yeah, doing a why tour not? in Sydney and Australia while we're writing a book? Great. Pilot on. Yes. Good. The answer is yes. Shonda Rhimes, a year of yes. We're Aww. doing it. Every day um, is Shonda Rhimes Day when you try hard enough. <laughs> That's what we say. You know we say that. That's right. Um, um, are you fucking watching the show of one of my favorite books that I mentioned a million times here, which I think you read, Station Eleven? I had started Station Eleven, yes. <gasps> On HBO. Oh. Um, it's really beautifully done, except for they got to the part where the traveling uh, theater group, where mm -hmm. I was like, this is too much like college. <laughs> I'm, I have to dip. Sorry. Gotta go. It's so like college and like in the book, they're like, you know, first violin has beef with second flute because he once <laughs> said this thing about that. And like, you know, the fucking actor from Shakespeare ha used to fuck third guitar. And so they don't talk to each other. And like, there's just so much. Even in the end days, there's beef. Of course. And drama. Yeah. But no, everyone I know, especially writers, love it and talk about it a lot. Oh, so I know so I have happy. to keep going. And Mackenzie, what's her last name? Phillips, Powers, Austin Powers. <laughs> Mackenzie Austin Powers. Mackenzie Davis? Mackenzie Davis. That's right, Stephen. Thank you. Mackenzie Davis is so fucking incredible in it. Yeah, and she's, she's great. such an incredible actor, sector. And the little girl who plays her as a little yeah. girl. Oh, Oof. I love it. And it's not even true to the book, which usually, of course, drives assholes like me crazy. But I still it still like works and it's perfect. Yeah. But read the it's book. it's it, well, no, it's beautifully shot. I don't know the book, but from what I experienced, the first episode hooked me right in mm -hmm. and then I went right along. But also, and this is the kind of thing to keep in mind, if you're in a pandemic and you're watching a show about yes. <laughs> apocalyptic end days, yes. you have to, you, you know, go gently into that I, bad night. I could understand why people would be hesitant to watch it, but it doesn't feel like now. It feels like, um, you know, good. Different. Oh, Jeevan. Um, Himesh Patel who plays the character Jeevan in it is who's like the initial guy who tries to save the dude yeah. on stage, who was also in that movie yesterday where everyone forgets the Beatles existed. And he, yeah. he's so fucking good. I, yeah, I he's great. Have a crush on him. He's like such a great actor. He's really good. And he's really good in that show. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. Good job, everybody. Good job. Love it. Had to say it. 
I want to tell you about the podcast I just stumbled on. It's real short. It's really satisfying. Mm. I heard about it from my friend Anne Donahue, the, can- the pride of Canada, Anne Donahue. Of course. It's a podcast called Sweet Bobby. Oh. And it is a catfishing story <gasps> unlike anything you've ever heard in your life. It's Holy shit. It's really something and you have to listen to it. And it's uh, the host is Alexi Mostris. I hope I'm saying his name right. It's really great. What's the like, can you give us a, like a brief? I know you probably don't want to do any spoilers, but like a little giveaway. I'm not going to do any spoilers. It's just someone gets catfished and the host, Alexi, actually says it in the beginning. I'm about to do the thing you should never do in a suspenseful story. I'm going to tell you right now she's being catfished (laughs) because that's how not even that. That's not the shock. It's like (gasps) it's really worth listening to and hearing the story because, again, it goes into why do people do what they do? It reminds me about of like watching a TV show in the pandemic about a pandemic and that would be hard. But I'm so afraid of catfishing that it's almost like hard to watch a catfishing or listen to a catfishing oh, story. It's horrible. It's your most vulnerable. You think yes. whatever it is, you think you're falling in love with a person who <sighs> isn't that. Per- that's everyone's fear. Yeah. Like we all have trust issues in whatever way. And that's that kind of thing where they're telling you everything you want to hear. And you think this is it. I've finally met this person. And it's that's not even a real person. I love the stories that we're all coming to. Like all of us kids who were raised, you know, who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s at the beginning of having like real access to the Internet and realizing that our best friend from Florida who we used to chat on AIM with all day and all night because they were just like us was not a 14 year old girl like you who just wanted to escape her small town. It was a creepy fucking dude. Yeah. Who, <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. Belinda doesn't exist. Yes. I mean, that's I never had to experience that. I was so past that. I was too old for that kind of yes. growing up online thing. Yeah. So this story to me is even more shocking because it's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yes. Like this is. Yeah. OK. What's it called again? It's called Sweet Bobby. OK. I'm listening right now. Really good. Goodbye. Hey, Karen. Do you know the podcast? Do you need a ride? It sounds familiar. Well, this week, the incredible hosts have none other than Gareth Reynolds of podcasting fame from the Dollop podcast on. And God, I freaking love that guy. He's so funny. He's a real gem. He's yeah. very good at podcasting. Yeah. There's also um, this podcast will kill you. They're covering endometriosis this week. Such an important topic. And then Bananas has an exactly right crossover episode this week by having the guests be Alex and Elizabeth from the True Beauty Brooklyn podcast, which is also on exactly right. And if you want to go fucking deep into the matrix, this week's True Beauty Brooklyn podcast guest is Dr. Dan from the Parent Footprint Podcast, which is also on Exactly Right. That's right. Jesus rabbit hole time. (laughs) Also, we've got some merch. There's a new uh, You're in a Cult t-shirt design that we really enjoy that you might want to go take a look at. It's cool. It's cool. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. 
June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like, perfectly scrambled eggs. Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient made in cookware. Made in was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Maiden. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of made-in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. All right. All right. Well, should we get started with our six-year anniversary episode? Are you ready to do it? Are you ready to show your work six years worth? (laughs) Oh my God. It'll look insane. Okay. I think I go first this week. Okay. And this week I'm covering the murder of Andrea Bowman. Okay. This one is, I had not heard of it. It's not famous. There's a little famous element to it, Mm. but it's a pretty compelling, pretty upsetting um, story, as they all are. That's what we're here for. Yep. So the sources for this story are the Atavis magazine had an article called The Girl in the Picture by Niall Capello. There's a Fox 17 West Michigan article by Carrie Haringa and Michael Martin. The Holland Sentinel. There's an article by Carolyn Myskins. Um, there's the Charlie Project archives. And there's an Oxygen article by Gina Tron about it. And there's an AP article. There's the Wikipedia page of the murder of Andrea Bowman. There's multiple Holland Sentinel articles by Carolyn Muskins. There's a News Channel 3 article by Samantha May. And there is an article by Austin Denian and Angeline McCall for Fox 17 West Michigan. And there's an Inside Edition article with no byline 
about the murder of Kathleen O'Brien Doyle. So this starts, it takes place in Holland, Michigan in the fall of 1988. And 14-year-old Andrea Bowman suddenly starts hanging around school long after the school day has ended. She eventually confides in her teachers that she's actually afraid to go home. So the school staff calls police and social services. And when they question Andrea, she tells them her father, Dennis Bowman, has been sexually assaulting her. So a social worker and a police officer escort Andrea home to confront Andrea's parents, Dennis and Brenda, who flatly deny their daughter's accusations. And they actually explain to authorities, Andrea recently found out that she was adopted and that they believe that this is just a rebellious kind of phase based on learning that information and she's kind of going through it. So they basically say their daughter's lying and that this is just, you know, this is her rebelling. Now, Andrea's been known as a rebellious kid in the past and that she's run away once before and gone and stayed at her friend's house. So this rationale actually satisfies the police and social services. But that means she was trying to escape her parents. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. She's not like a bad the, kid. She's fucking leaving her home. She's trying to get out of a horrible situation, yeah. but I think it, yeah. So I get it. I get it. It works and the adults are believed and the children are not believed. Mm-hmm. And essentially they leave Andrea at the Bowman's house mm-hmm. and nothing happens. Soon afterwards, the family moves from their house in Holland to a trailer that's kind of way outside of town in Allegan County, Michigan. So then on Saturday, March 11th, 1989, while Brenda's at work, so this is like roughly six months later, mm-hmm. Dennis Bowman comes home from visiting family that weekend to find that Andrea, who was supposed to have stayed at home to do homework, isn't there. In fact, she's nowhere to be found. Dennis calls Brenda at work to tell her this news. The two then contact the police to report Andrea missing. Dennis says he believes Andrea stole $100 from his bedroom dresser before packing her bag and running away. And the police open an investigation into Andrea's disappearance, and they classify her as an endangered runaway. So we'll talk about her a little bit. Andrea Michelle Bowman, whose birth name was Alexis Miranda Badger, is born on June 23rd, 1974 in New Orleans to her 16-year-old biological mother, Kathy Turkanian. Mm. So both Kathy and her 19-year-old husband, Randy, they've left their own like dysfunctional home lives to make a new life together in New Orleans. Kathy's determined to give her daughter a better childhood than the one that she had, But after a few months of raising Alexis as basically a teen mother, her teen husband, Randy, starts cheating on her and neglecting the baby, and it all kind of falls apart. Mm -hmm. So with no other options, Kathy leaves Randy and goes back to her hometown in Virginia to live with her mother. But her mother doesn't help Kathy with this baby. She's constantly telling Kathy that she can't raise Alexis on her own. And basically, Kathy becomes convinced of that. She's worried her mother's right. So she decides the the right thing to do would be to give Alexis up for adoption when she's just five months old in the hope that someone else can give her daughter the life that she deserves. Yeah. So Alexis spends 16 months in foster care until Dennis and Brenda Bowman, who at the time are living in Virginia, adopt her in 1976. And they rename her Andrea Michelle Bowman. And soon after, they move to West Michigan. So then in January of 1988, the beginning of the year where the problems start uh, for Andrea at school, mm-hmm. 
Brenda gives birth to a baby girl named Vanessa and 14 year old Andrea is very protective of her little sister and she spends her free time caring for the baby as if it were her own. And Andrea has reason to be protective of her little sister because in 1980, when Andrea was just six years old, Dennis Bowman is arrested for the attempted rape of a 19 year old woman. Oh, my God. This woman tells police that Dennis forced her at gunpoint into a wooded area in West Michigan and threatened to, quote, blow a hole right through her if she didn't do what he said. Luckily, right in that moment, a passing car distracts Dennis and this woman is able to jump on her bicycle and get away and go to the police. Holy shit. He's arrested the same day and this woman immediately identifies him in a lineup. Dennis ends up cutting a deal with the prosecutors. He pleads guilty to assault with intent to commit criminal sexual conduct, and he's sentenced to five to 10 years in prison. He serves the minimum of five years. He's released in 1986, and he's still on parole when Andrea disappears in 1989. Hmm. So rumors swirl around town that Andrea had been physically, potentially, like allegedly physically abused at home. When she was in middle school, uh, there's kids that say that one day she got on the bus and she was bleeding, her wrist was bleeding, Mm. and they weren't sure if it was self-harm or some heard that it was because she was trying to break back into her house after her parents locked her out. No matter what, the stories are disturbing. There's Mm -hmm. clearly something going on in that house. But given the era and the general mindset of this Michigan town, people might minded their own business. No one looks into it. No one questions the Bowmans about it. That's such a crazy little detail right there. She claimed she was being sexually assaulted. They bring her home and the dad is on parole for attempted sexual assault and they still don't believe her. Yes, they don't connect it. (sighs) Yeah, it's like they're not looking into it or or the parents are so convincing right that they don't think to look into it i mean the fact that those things weren't weren't that that wasn't linked i mean because it's the late 80s so there's not computer systems there's no internet yeah it's not they would have to have all those files you know they would have to know right right okay so in the weeks following andrea's disappearance dennis and brenda move once again from that trailer outside of town to a new house in hamilton michigan And over the next few months, Brenda calls around to Andrea's friends. She's asking them if anyone has seen her, and they all say no. She also makes several phone calls to the police saying she's gotten tips from people saying that they've spotted Andrea around town. Police look into every tip that Brenda gives them. None of these sightings are ever verified. So now it's 1993, and Andrea's been missing for four years. So this is the year that the band Soul Asylum releases the music video for the song Runaway Train, which if you grew up in this time, you know this video was a song about missing children, and the video actually featured photos of 36 children who were missing at the time. And Andrea Bowman is one of those kids that's featured in the video. Oh, my God. This video is on constant rotation on music video channels. And this video leads to finding 25 of the 36 missing kids. Holy shit. Which is amazing. And like what a beautiful thing Soul Asylum did for those for those families and for those kids. But sadly, Andrea is not one of the kids that gets Mm. found. Her case remains unsolved and eventually goes cold. So then in 1998... 
Dennis Bowman is caught breaking and entering the home of his former coworker, 20-year-old Vicki Brink in Ottawa County, Michigan. So Vicki's had several break-ins at her house, so she installed a security system. And when the alarm goes off, a police officer arrives to find Dennis Bowman exiting her back door. He tells the officer that he's been staying with Vicky. The officer believes him no. and lets him go. Yeah. No, without even asking her. You know, I, I don't know if she's not there. It seems like she's not there. So it takes yeah, a second. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So when she goes, when Vicky tells the officer Dennis is lying, they go to Dennis's home. They search his property. They find a duffel bag containing Vicky's stolen lingerie, a black sweatshirt, a mask, <sighs> and a short barreled shotgun. Oh, fuck. Yeah. So Dennis is arrested on the spot. He pleads guilty to the breaking and entering charge, but not before giving the court letters from several people defending his character. Ew. And those letters are from his boss, a member of his church, uh-huh. his sex offender group counselor, hmm. the principal at his daughter Vanessa's school, and uh-huh. his wife, Brenda. Yeah. Never defend someone. You just don't know. <laughs> he also writes... The judge a letter himself in which he says, quote, I am the father of two lovely daughters, one 25, the other 11. And I feel that being a parent is one of the most important and sobering things a person can undertake, end quote. Fuck you, dude. Oh, my God. I hate his guts. He fails to mention that 25 year old daughter he's talking about has been missing for 10 years. <gasps> so these character testimonials actually end up helping lessen Dennis's sentence for this crime. <sighs> Okay, so then in 2009, an amateur forensic sketch artist in El Segundo, California, named Carl Koppelman, is scrolling through NamUs, which is the national database of missing persons and unidentified bodies, when he comes across a Racine County Jane Doe. So this Jane Doe is found in a Wisconsin cornfield in 1999. She'd suffered broken bones, and there were signs of sexual assault, but a combination of rain and decay made it difficult for authorities to determine an exact cause of death or identify the body. So when Koppelman plugs this Jane Doe's basic traits into NamUs, mm-hmm. her hazel green eyes, her pierced ears, the short reddish brown hair, he gets a close match to Andrea Bauman. The Doe's approximate age at the time of her death aligns with the age of Andrea, what she would have been in 1999, which is 25 years old, plus the location where this Jane Doe was found is a four-hour drive from where Andrea was last seen. So this is all enough to prompt investigators to start looking at this cold case again. Mm-hmm. But they need a relative's DNA to see if the Racine County Jane Doe is... In fact, Andrea. So authorities track down her birth mother, Kathy Turkanian. Wow. When they talk to her in 2010, Kathy's life is completely different than the one she was living when she was a teen mother who was forced to give up her child. Mm-hmm. Now she's graduated from nursing school and she lives a very comfortable life with her new husband in Massachusetts. She'd always wondered about uh, Alexis, her daughter, Alexis, who's now Andrea, and she'd always hoped that she was happy. Mm-hmm. So getting a letter saying that her daughter may have been murdered is, of course, shocking and heartbreaking. That's just so sad that like you think giving a child up to have a better life and then someone wanting a kid and stepping up and adopting that they'd still be monsters, you know, like you yeah. wouldn't. 
He wouldn't. It's it's worst case scenario. Yeah. As for for someone who's trying to do the right thing for this baby because totally. they love them so much. Totally. So of course Kathy's more than willing to provide a DNA sample. But she also wants to know more about what happened to her daughter. So she scours the web for answers Mm. and she sets up a Facebook page and a classmates.com page for Andrea to gather information. And she and Carl Koppelman end up connecting through that classmates.com page. And as Carl and other amateur detectives interested in Andrea's case provide more information about the Bowmans, Kathy decides to submit a Freedom of Information Act request to learn more about Dennis Bowman's record, essentially. Mm -hmm. And when she learns about these crimes, she immediately suspects he's involved with Andrea's disappearance. Mm -hmm. But she knows that she has to find proof. And then she's dealt another blow. Those DNA results that came back on the Racine County Jane Doe, it's not Andrea. No. Right. The body's later identified as a young woman named Peggy Johnson. But Kathy really believes that Dennis Bowman has something to do with Andrea's disappearance. Yeah. And she's now determined to figure out what happened to her daughter. So Kathy and Carl Koppelman continue... Their web sleuth investigation. They go to Michigan together several times to Mm. talk to the police about the case. They search for old acquaintances who might have more information. And they also go and scope out the Bowman's house. Mm. And from a distance, they can see the backyard of the Mm. Bowman's house. And Kathy spots a patch of cement on the (gasps) property. Yeah. And she is so afraid that her daughter could be buried underneath it. Oh, my God. So in September of 2013, Carl and Kathy attend a missing persons event organized by local law enforcement called Missing in Michigan. And during one of the group sessions, Kathy and Carl spot Brenda and her daughter, Vanessa. No. Brenda Bowman. Brenda tentatively approaches Kathy because she's aware of these accusations that Kathy's been making about her husband on Facebook uh-huh. and elsewhere online. Yeah. And this turns into a confrontation, which turns into a screaming match. Kathy demands that Brenda tell the truth about her husband. Brenda defends Dennis, of course, saying that they did everything they could to cooperate with police and to try and find Andrea. It's just a, it's a horrible, it's like worst case scenario for something, an event like that, where they're trying to solve problems and it's horrible. Oh my God. So meanwhile, now, while all that's going on, cold case investigators in Virginia mm-hmm. are making headway on a seemingly unrelated case, the 1980 unsolved murder of a woman named Kathleen O'Brien Doyle. So Kathleen was a 25-year-old aspiring novelist, and she was the daughter of a U.S. naval officer who was married to a Navy pilot. So Kathleen's husband was deployed in 1980 leaving her alone in their Norfolk, Virginia home. Mm -hmm. And there she was found raped, bound, and murdered. Mm. So in 1983, the police thought they had their culprit when serial killer, this stupid motherfucker, Henry Lee Lucas, confessed to her murder. Motherfucker. But when DNA testing proved that to be a lie, Kathleen's case ran cold. But as genetic testing 
Technology starts to improve in the 2000s. Cold case investigators run Kathleen's crime scene DNA samples through their new DNA database system, and they get a list of 30 potential suspects. And now all they need to do is collect the DNA from each of the suspects to see if they can confirm a match to Mm -hmm. someone on that list. That seems... Like a huge undertaking. Yeah, that's that's quite a job. Okay, so in 2019, and this is how much these cold case investigators stayed on this. It's pretty amazing. They meet detectives from Michigan at a conference. Mm -hmm. And when they show the Michigan detectives the suspect list from Kathleen's murder case, Mm -hmm. the Michigan investigators immediately recognize one of the names, Dennis Bowman. Wow. When they put the timeline together... They discover Bowman was still living in Michigan at the time of Kathleen's murder. In fact, that's when he was out on bail and awaiting trial for the attempted rape of the 19-year-old West Michigan woman. Mm. So Kathleen O'Brien Doyle's murder took place while Dennis was on a two-week leave for his Navy Reserve Service requirement that he was fulfilling. So while he's out on bail, he goes to do his Navy Reserve Service, Uh and then he's on leave for that service. And this is all taking place in Norfolk, Virginia. Oh, for fuck's sake. And it turns out, but this is the part I really love, getting Dennis's DNA turns out to be easier than the Virginia investigators could have imagined because it turns out that Brenda and Dennis had gone to the Holland, Michigan police station mm-hmm. a couple years prior to complain about the online harassment from Kathy Turkanian. Mm-hmm. So while they're at the police station to lodge that complaint... The police offered Dennis a bottle of water. Yes. Which he took and drank and left there without a second thought. And those cops saved that bottle and they kept Dennis's DNA sample on file. So when Virginia... They fucking knew they would find something eventually. They fucking knew it. They knew. They knew that he'd he'd already been prosecuted for, uh, for sexual assault a couple times. They're like, let's just slip this in the back pocket. Yeah, we might as well. evidence room. Oh, my God. Someone was very smart. Yeah. So when Virginia investigators test the sample, they find a direct match to the DNA found at the scene of Kathleen's murder. Oh, my God. So on November 22nd, 2019, Michigan police, in cooperation with the Virginia authorities, raid the now 72-year-old Dennis Bowman's home Mm. and arrest him. And he admits to Kathleen's murder, Mm. but he claims he only meant to rob her. But when he saw her there, she surprised him and he decided that he had to kill her. Uh Uh-huh. It's her fault for surprising him. Right. Yes, exactly. He was so innocent is that he was only going to rob her, even though he has a a history. of assault and rape. Fucking piece of shit. Dennis pleads guilty on June 10th, 2020 to the first degree murder and rape of Kathleen O'Brien Doyle, as well as to a related burglary charge. And he's given two life sentences for her murder and an additional 20 years for that burglary charge. Mm -hmm. But Kathy Turkanian still wants justice for her daughter. Yeah. And luckily it doesn't take long for her to get it. Because while behind bars... Dennis Bowman starts copying to more crimes. What? The first one he confesses to is the 1979 rape of an unnamed 27-year-old Michigan woman. Um, mm. Apparently, he broke into her home, bound and gagged her, then raped and robbed her. And although she was able to give a thorough description of her assailant, Dennis had never been caught. 
And then sometime around December 2019 or January 2020, in a written confession, as well as in a phone conversation with his wife, Brenda, Dennis finally admits to (gasps) killing Andrea. (gasps) Yep. He claims, again, he claims it was an accident. His story is that when he came home on March 11th, 1989, Andrea threatened to tell more people that he had been molesting her and they argued. And in the heat of the moment, according Uh to Dennis, he slapped her, knocked her down the stairs. And in that fall, she broke her neck. So then because he was afraid of the authorities, of course, he takes his daughter's body to a remote barn, dismembers her. And burns her clothes. Then he hides the remains under a tarp until the Bowmans move into their new home in Hamilton, where he buries her remains in the backyard and covers her grave with a thin layer of cement, which is the exact same slab of cement that Kathy spotted and suspected was the site of her daughter's burial. She was right. Kathy! Kathy was right. Oh, my God. So when police dig up the cemented area, they find human remains. And when they run DNA tests, it is confirmed that the remains are Andrea Bowman's. Mm. And Brenda Bowman is completely shocked by this discovery. Truly, she had no idea that her daughter's remains, her adoptive daughter's remains, were buried in her own backyard for nearly 30 years. So this woman who was defending her husband, yeah. who was trying, you know, f- tr- thinking that she was fighting the good fight and that right. it's so sad. So the first hearing for Andrea's murder takes place. February of 2021. So basically a a year ago. Yeah. Brenda admits that when Andrea was alive at this hearing, she admits that Andrea confided in her that Dennis was molesting her and that she, she didn't or couldn't believe what her daughter was telling her. And she confesses that she told Andrea that's a lie and you know it. When I hear these stories, I mean, I think everyone, it's so heartbreaking. And so unfortunately, we hear it over and over again. It's so sad. Like you're siding with your husband rather than your daughter. Why would she make that up? It's so. It's awful. It's just so sad. So that trial got delayed by COVID, of course. It got rescheduled for January 11th, 2022. <gasps> That's tomorrow. Okay. I was just going to look down on my computer and be like, what day is it? Yeah. Oh, my. so it, when this comes up on Thursday, it'll have happened already. Yeah. <gasps> but on Wednesday, December 22nd of last year, Dennis pled no contest to the second degree murder. His sentencing takes place next month on the 7th and okay. Kathy Turkanian plans to be there. Hell yeah. Of course. She's also planning on working to obtain custody of Andrea's remains. Mm-hmm. Kathy still calls her Alexis, by the way, her birth name. Of course. Because Kathy wants to arrange the funeral and give her daughter a proper burial. Mm-hmm. And that is the tragic story of the murder of Andrea Bowman. Wow. Wow. That's such a banana story. I had never heard that. Yeah, me either. It's so heartbreaking. It's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. Right. Well, great job. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. 
There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Okay. Well, let's take a lefty, shall we? Okay. And go to one of the topics I like, which is the where it came from things. And this is the history of the insanity defense. Cool. Okay. So the sources used for today's episode are a PBS frontline documentary, Cornell Law School, an Indian Journal of Psychiatry article written by T.V. Asokan, the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law, and a Psychology Today article written by Dr. Susan J. Lewis. So we hear, Karen, I'm sure you know about the insanity defense a lot in true crime and on TV shows and movies, but only 1% of all defendants ever plead not guilty by reason of insanity, which is tiny. And only 25% of those defendants are successful in using the defense. So what exactly is the insanity defense? Well, according to Cornell Law School, when a defendant uses the insanity defense, they're admitting to the crime but are asserting a lack of culpability based on mental illness. And it's an excuse rather than a justification defense. So the idea that someone shouldn't be held responsible for their actions due to their mental state, a.k.a. the insanity defense, has been around since the 1500s, but it wasn't until the 1800s that a court actually came up with a test on how to determine a defendant's insanity. In 1843, a Scotsman named Daniel Monoton, so it's M apostrophe Naughton, which is confusing. That's a new... new, uh, Yeah. Kind of name. Sure. M apostrophe. You put an apostrophe in your name. You're fucking fancy as shit, right? It's like they're not going to bother with that little C. Monoton. He's on trial in England for the murder of Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel's secretary, Edward Drummond. Monoton's attorney tells the jury that he should be acquitted because he's insane and has been for years. They tell the jury that two years prior to the murder, Monoton told the police that the Tories were harassing him, that they followed him everywhere he went, and he said that they, quote, do everything in their power to harass and persecute him and that they wanted to murder him. Which, An of course, entire political 
Yes. Uh, group is is harassing him. This one man. Yes. Okay. So obviously nice. that's not true. He's having um, what's it called? Delusions. His paranoia continued to grow over the next two years to the point where he decided that in order to end this harassment that he was delusional about, he had to kill the Tory prime minister, Sir Robert Peel. Mm. So on June 20th, 1843, Monoton waits outside of Peel's house with a gun. And then a man comes out of the house and starts walking down the street. And Monoton walks up behind him and shoots the man in the back, thinking it's Peel. And he does it in front of a bunch of witnesses. He's not trying to, like, keep it secret. Fires the gun. And then it turns out that it wasn't Peel, but his secretary, Edward Drummond. Oh, I know. What a bummer, right? The defense tells the jury that while awaiting trial, Monoton was examined by multiple psychiatrists, one of which, Dr. Edward Monroe, testifies that Monoton's delusions are real to him um, and the things he thought were uh, at least actually happening to him. Mm-hmm. So other psychiatrists testify for the defense, saying that Manon is insane. Even the two psychiatrists called by the Crown, you know, the uh, prosecution, say that Manon is insane. So he's acquitted and is ordered to spend the rest of his life in an institution. The court and press are super fucking pissed about this verdict. They don't feel like Monoton is insane enough to get away with murder. They basically think he's getting away with murder and like making up an excuse. Right. Queen Victoria asked the House of Lords to come up with a set of requirements a defendant must meet in order to be found legally insane. And so this set of requirements becomes known as the Monoton Rule. According to Cornell Law School, the Manon rule requires that a defendant has to prove one of the following two things. That at the time of committing the crime, the defendant was either, quote, laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing. Or two, quote, if he did know that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. Right. So the Monoton rule really stresses the idea of a defendant knowing right from wrong at the time of the crime. And so the fact that Monoton did this in front of a bunch of witnesses says that he wasn't aware that it was wrong. And because of this, it's now much harder for someone to be found insane in the eyes of the law because of these two rules. For example, if these requirements existed when Monoton himself was at trial, he would not have even been acquitted. So the laws don't even pertain to the person it was named after. Following the creation of the Monoton Rule in England, courts in the United States adopt the rules for themselves. But by the mid 20th century, some states realize that the rule is missing something, which is that it doesn't take into consideration someone's ability to control their actions. At the time, the defendant may know right from wrong, but they are not able to stop themselves from acting. So if that's the case, then there's nothing in the Monoton Rule to allow the defendant to be acquitted. So to take care of this issue, some states started using an irresistible impulse test. In addition to the Monoton Rule, this test basically boils down to the simple question of would the defendant have committed the crime even if there were policemen standing at his elbow? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, then they should be acquitted. So after a couple iterations of like rules and laws that are changed, federal judges order that the monotonous rules be replaced by the Moral Penal Code or MPC. So the American Law Institute published the MPC rule, which basically combined the monotonous rule with the irresistible impulse test, then added in the medical and psychiatric angle. 
It says that a defendant cannot be held criminally responsible if at the time in question, quote, he lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to confirm. Sorry, that's boring. Who cares? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, because these are the it's like the little details of drive down how they figured out how to get to this in the first place, which is a thing that at this point people have exploited. But in the beginning, it had these really good intentions. Yeah. You know, it's also that people exploit it. But people also are like. When it actually works, people don't believe it, which is like, well, there's actually like really strict rules to use it. So if it does happen, then you should believe it. It's not like they're fucking letting any asshole use it. Right. Completely. And you know what it makes me think of, too, is the Sacramento vampire. Richard, what's his name? Where yes, he thought his insides were, you know, he he was truly, he had gone, as my mother used to love to say, organic in the brain. Like he, he, the reality he was living was not the reality we were all living. And he was doing things that seemed, that made sense in that very screwed up world that his brain had been showing him. Totally. He believed what he was having delusions about a hundred percent. I feel like the same thing. And a lot of people argue with Andrea Yates, you know, which is such a, we would never cover that. It's such a hard, like horrible. And you, you, you know, she, it's what she did is horrendous, but based on what we've read, it's she, she was not in her fucking same mind. And also this is that um, extreme postpartum, right? a thing that never gets talked about, of course, because it happens to women. So it's right. only it's in 2021 where people finally start actually talking about, yes, this has happened to me. You know, the ultimate shame is that you're not a good mother. So totally. Or like you're not also like, I love being a mother. It's the yeah. best. Everything about it. And it's like, no, everyone knows it kind of sucks for the first year. Or do they? I don't <laughs> know. Me? It's just me. Sorry. <laughs> That's your personal theory. That's your personal delusion. It is my personal delusion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Substantial capacity. Around half the states adopt some form of the MPC rule, while the other half continue to use a form of the monotonous rule. Then everything changes again on June 21st, 1982, when a jury acquits. John Hinckley Jr. after he attempted to assassinate then-President Ronald Reagan. So Mm. just a really quick recap on March 30th, 1981, President Reagan, and there's fucking film of this, right? Yes, I've seen it. It's crazy. Yeah. He's leaving the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. He just spoke at a conference, so everyone's fucking just living their lives. Hinckley was in the crowd and was able to fire six shots at Reagan before he was knocked to the ground. And none of the bullets hit Reagan directly, but one ricocheted off the presidential limo and struck him in the chest, puncturing a lung and causing internal bleeding. Reagan almost died, but was saved during surgery and released from the hospital almost two weeks later. What's weird about that is I didn't realize he was hit. I I thought he walked away from that, like our friend Gerald Ford and all the times people tried to assassinate him. <laughs> I think what happened. Yeah, because I, I think what happened was he they don't think he's hit. He gets in the um, car and they yeah. drive away. Right. And like he feels some pain like a sharp pain in his armpit oh, and they realize wow. like he didn't even they didn't even know he was hit until he was like what's this and pulls his jacket up and there's like blood mm. crazy right yeah so during the attack three other people were shot um police officer thomas 
Delahanty and Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy. They're wounded. They make full recoveries. But sadly, press secretary James Brady is permanently paralyzed. Yeah. So at Hinckley's trial, the jury was told that Hinckley was insane at the time of the attempted assassination. He was suffering from delusions where he believed Jodie Foster, actress Jodie Foster, was in love with him. Years prior, Hinckley had become obsessed with Foster after watching the movie Taxi Driver, which obviously uh, it's about Robert De Niro trying to save Jodie Foster's character, a 12-year-old girl, from being sex trafficked. And at one point in the movie, De Niro's character tries to assassinate a U.S. senator who's running for president. And so Hinckley starts stalking um, Jodie Foster after this, follows her around, writes her letters, even was able to call her. And when she said she wasn't interested, Hinckley decided he needed to become famous to get her to fall in love with him. And that's when he decided to be like De Niro's character and assassinate a politician. Hmm. Following Hinckley's acquittal, the public is fucking outraged. You know, obviously you can't fucking assassinate a sitting president. They think that Hinckley's found some loophole in the system and they refuse to believe that being obsessed with an actor is the same thing as being insane. Mm-hmm. Many politicians and members of the public call for the insanity defense to be abolished. On the other side, psychiatrists say it shouldn't be abolished, just revised. Because obviously there's people who truly need it. And it, so it well, needs to be in place. And he qualifies, Hinckley qualifies old school style where if you, if there was a cop at your right. side, which <laughs> there, he was shooting into a crowd Literally, of cops. Literally. You're, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Also, and here's my other point that's not really related, but one of my favorite band names of all time is Jodie Foster's Army. Have you ever heard of that band? No. <laughs> JFA. I wonder JFA. if they were Bay Area, but they were, I'm, I'm sure punk. And yeah. they, it was the, the first time it was like JFA stickers everywhere. And, yeah. I saw, and then I saw that it was Jodie Foster's Army. And I was like, I don't care what kind of music they make. This is my favorite band. Oh my God. Let's get t-shirts. <laughs> yep. Go to their, wear their t-shirts to their concerts. Okay. In 1984, Congress answers the call to what the fuck do we do about this with the Insanity Defense Reform Act, where a compromise is made. So the insanity defense isn't abolished, but it does become more strict. The MPC rules thrown out. Monoton rule is put back in place. This guy, man, fucking historic. He lives. Yeah. In addition, a defendant can still present evidence of a mental disease or defect, but now he has to also prove that it is severe. So, like, I can't go in and be like, I've been in therapy since I was a kid. Therefore, I didn't know what I was doing when I killed someone. Like, that doesn't work. At the time of the murder, you have to be totally etc. However, a defendant can no longer use irresistible impulse as part of their defense. A few other revisions are made, for example, so the prosecution had the burden of proof before to prove that the defendant was sane. So that was their job to be like that. But now the defendant has to prove that he was insane at the time of the crime, which Mm -hmm. seems which is probably a lot harder or a lot, you know, here's an example of the insanity defense being used and working the case of Lorena Bobbitt. Mm. You know this. So on June 23rd, 1993, in Manassas, Virginia, in the middle of the freaking night, Lorena Bobbitt, who's 24, cuts off the penis of her sleeping husband, John uh. Wayne Bobbitt, who's 26. Oh, you look, you're cringing. It's, it's very 
upsetting. Yeah. I hate this story so much. I know. I know. Life was salacious in the 90s, you know? Well, and also it was the kind of thing where then it became this Howard Stern topic and it was like every joke and you couldn't get away from it. And it's really, if it were a man doing that to a woman and people were making jokes like that, it would, I mean, people would go insane. So like, I just, that whole idea that it's, but it's funny if it happens to a man is really gross, I think. Right. And it's like, it came from a traumatic event. So how that's not humor. The whole thing is is an issue. Totally. So after she did that, she flees the scene um, along with the severed penis, and she later tosses it out the car window while driving along a highway in Virginia. She says she did it because her husband, John Wayne Bobbitt, emotionally, physically, and sexually abused her during their marriage and had even forced her to have an abortion. She also claims that her husband raped her on the night she cut off his penis. Her defense lawyer, Blaine D. Howard, states that after suffering years of John's abuse, she had just snapped, using that word, due to the PTSD and clinical depression the abuse had caused her, which caused her to have that irresistible impulse in the moment. She's acquitted in 1994 at her trial, and though she's ultimately committed to a mental hospital, five weeks later, the judge orders her to be released. Through the years, the insanity defense continues to evolve. Someone who is found guilty but mentally ill is still held criminally responsible. But since they are mentally ill, instead of going to prison right away, they receive mental health treatment. But once they're done with treatment, they serve the remainder of their sentence in a regular prison. This differs from the not guilty by reason of insanity um, acquittal verdict where the defendant receives treatment but is released if and when they finish treatment which Mm -hmm. seems a little more level-headed to me right depends yeah you know right all depends all it's contextual all of it it is and today each state has their own rules when it comes to the insanity defense the federal government's laws on the insanity defense remain the same as they did in 1984 Mm. and that is the history of the insanity defense. I mean, I think it's interesting to look back on the conversation when, um, as Dave Holmes talks about in his brilliant podcast, Waiting for Impact, the monoculture. We were getting one story right. from basically one new, one or two news sources mm-hmm. about these things and told what to think about these right. topics. So it was like the insanity defense is bullshit. And whoever yeah. was saying that, we we're like, yes, it is because yeah. that's all we heard. And there was very little nuance or expansion conversation around that so it was like oh these bad guys are using it to get out and that's that's all it is where obviously as we know and the longer we tell these stories to each other these horrible things and the why behind it it's like there's a lot of different whys behind these stories and mental illness is a big part of many of them well i think what's what's changing the conversation and culture is that mental illness is is you know always evolving but starting to be more understood as something that is rampant in our society because it was so shamed and hidden and like, you know, there's the crazy kid in your family, send them away. And now yeah. it's like this happens in everyone's family. There's someone in everyone's family or there's, you know, you with your own mental illnesses and your own issues. And we all have PTSD in some fucking way or some, you know, trauma. And it's, I think, hopefully being a little more, we're being a little more empathetic these days. 
And but then also once that's part of the conversation, too, then it's like so then we can say like the the thing that happens a lot where it's like, right, you know, this person went through trauma and that's the rationale behind these crimes. Right. Except all the other people who also went right. through that trauma do not kill. Right. Therefore, we need to really process this in a different way. Like, totally. I think that the fact that people are able to speak up and be like, I never did that. And I went through yeah. the exact same thing. Yeah. So that can't be the excuse. And it, we can't pretend that these are these, you know, like this people going through family trauma is always this very specialized experience when in fact it's common and lots of people take responsibility and or get help. And also yeah. back then there used to be, there used to be state run help. <laughs> right. we, we need, we need mental health services back. Oh God. We need services. For so people. bad. Thanks Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking, uh, well, for our sixth anniversary, should we maybe each do one or two fucking hoorays? Let's do it. Okay. Great job, by the way. Oh, I thank think that's you. Re- that's really interesting. I think thank it's you. like I uh, all those kinds of things. I always want to know more and more about them. Thank you. Okay, this one says, hey, y'all, are we still doing fucking hoorays? Well, if not, <laughs> I'm still telling you this because it's awesome and we all need some hope. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I work a side job where I'm a princess for parties and marketing <laughs> events. Fuck. Yes. Write a memoir, please. And I got the opportunity to work with a local pediatric cancer organization recently. About a month ago, I visited a little girl sick with a rare brain cancer, and they weren't really sure how much longer she'd be with us. Well, this last week, I was invited back to see this brave, strong, incredibly smart princess to help her celebrate her fifth birthday. Mm. Not only did she beat the odds and make it to five, but she started walking for the first time in a long, long time. A lot of things may suck, but she inspires me to keep going because if she can, I sure as hell can. Mm -hmm. Carolyn. Nice, Carolyn. Princess Carolyn. Beautiful. Okay, this one, there's no name on this. It's from the Gmail Mm -hmm. inbox. And it says, my fucking hooray is that after being stuck in my hometown and my mental health suffering because of it, I finally found a job on the East Coast and moved. Mm. I left my very supportive family and my equally supportive job of seven years. Everyone I came across agreed that I needed to move so I can grow. Even though I'm not prepared to deal with what a real winter looks like, I'm excited to explore new places. Places, meet new people, and most importantly, keep pushing myself to grow into the person that I want to be. Thank you, ladies, for being an inspiration to try a new kind of lifestyle. That chills. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so true. It's so true. They're doing it. You have to grow. It's great. Yeah. You got to do it. You got to do the scary stuff. You're a little, what do they say? That it, it hurt that thing where it, one day it hurt more to, oh, forget it, to stay small than it something to, like that. To grow. Yeah. You know, that old. Oh, <laughs> you just sew that on a pillow and it just kind of fades off. <laughs> just the thread starts on unraveling as you get to the last word. The W isn't on there all the way. You're just like, you know, that thing um, where they say Murderino Kelly Swig, who does all those cool, like funny graphics for us that I put up on Instagram. She'll make a good little stitchy <laughs> pillow. She always does. She's very funny. Uh Guys, six years. Thank you so much for being with us this whole time. We could not, we would not be here without you, literally. Yeah. And 
Thank you so much for your uh, interest, your support, your feedback. Um, you made us who we are. Yeah, we we appreciate you, and uh, we'll keep doing it if you th- keep coming back. It works if you work it. it yeah, you got to show up, and then <laughs> and then we'll keep we'll keep doing these. Yeah. Um, thank you for everything. Stay sexy and don't get murdered. Goodbye, Goodbye. Elvis. Do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe!